Hi, everyone. I'm here with my classmate, Parker, and we are talking to Dr. Kara Geisinger, a family physician who has worked in full-spectrum primary care. She is currently working as a general primary care physician at Equitas Clinic, which caters care to the LGBTQ population. Our first question is just kind of general. If you could explain to us what it means to identify as LGBTQ+, and the different stages of being quote-unquote out that you see in your patients. Yeah, so I think there is no one definition. I think that's a really key part of what it means to identify as LGBTQ. So traditionally, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and then the Q can either stand for questioning or queer, um, which can mean a lot of different things to different people. And then I think within that, there's also people that identify as non-binary. So yeah, I think the definition is it's kind of up to the person who's identifying somewhere along that spectrum. And then similarly, being out is definitely not just a one-time process and not defined as the same thing to everyone. So people have to come out repeatedly, you know, daily possibly because they're in different settings and different social groups or potentially each time they come to a new provider, they might have to quote unquote come out again. I personally see people that are very wide range of different stages or even just kind of understanding of their gender identity or sexual orientation for themselves. So sometimes I'm seeing people that are just kind of starting on that journey and or at the point where they're really just, yeah, coming to that realization themselves that that's something that they're questioning. And Uh, maybe haven't really even, maybe aren't even using those words, um, those descriptors as as trans or gay or whatever for themselves yet, let alone have shared that with anyone else. A lot of times I see people that are, I'm speaking more, I feel like people in terms of sexual orientation are usually pretty out and are comfortable with that. I also see a primarily younger demographic. So I think Luckily, people are feel pretty comfortable sharing that, which is really cool to see. So as far as sexual orientation and practices, I, I think that's generally pretty widely shared. But in terms of gender identity, being trans or non-binary, yeah, it can really vary. Some, a lot of times it's they're out to themselves, you could say, and to close friends, but maybe not family, maybe not at work. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's a very wide range. And sometimes... Patients will come identifying, for example, uh, trans women having a preferred female name and using she, her pronouns, and maybe presenting to someone who's not met them as masculine appearing, but it's really important that you respect their wishes. And that might be for a safety reason, you know, Mm -hmm. that they're not able to present uh, physically um, congruent with their gender identity yet maybe because of a work setting or a home setting. How do you tailor your care towards your patients, depending on kind of what stage of out they are um, and where they're at in that process? How can you best support them? So I think it's just really important to ask them where they are. And if we're talking, I feel like most of this is more so geared towards like um, gender identity Mm -hmm. uh, concerns. So yeah, just kind of asking them where they are in that process before starting hormones for anybody. Uh, There's a pretty extensive gender history that we will do. Our office is, we consider it an an 
informed consent clinic, meaning acknowledge the patients have the right and the capacity to make an informed decision for themselves about starting hormones, not our decision. That's not always the case with all providers, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long conversation. It's typically, I'm lucky the office that I'm at, our first visit is a 60 minute visit, which is very wow. rare. <laughs> and then we have 30 minute follow-up, which I think is, is really helpful when you're unpacking a lot of really sensitive information. But so for example, for a patient who's thinking about starting hormones, that usually happens over the course of like two visits where we're just doing history and going through where they're at and what support they have and what their goals are, what their understanding is. Do they need counseling? Um, we don't require counseling, um, but I do think it's really helpful just to have someone to navigate that process. And if someone isn't quite sure yet, if we're kind of get a, get a sense of maybe we still need to figure some things out, then sometimes we'll suggest, you know, okay, maybe we should um, take some time to meet with a mental health counselor and, and kind of work through what your goals are, what your understanding is before we move forward with something, you know, more permanent like hormones. What sort of gaps have you seen um, that exist in LGBTQ plus care that you maybe have access to now or are focusing more on now that could be more widely applied to primary care for these types of patients? Yeah, I think there's a lot there. Um, and I acknowledge that doing some of this care, like particularly um, gender-affirming hormones, can be a little bit intimidating to start. Um, I was really lucky in having a lot of support and training when I started at my current office. You know, I learned all of this post-residency, despite trying to, to do it in residency in med school, just I acknowledge that those those training resources aren't super common. So um, if it's something you're really committed to, there definitely are resources out there. The Fenway Institute has some really great resources. I think the biggest things are just making sure that you have that you're using inclusive language with your patients in any office setting. So in their personal interactions with them, no matter what you know services you're able to offer. Um, in whatever office setting you're in, I think anyone can just make sure that they're using inclusive language and that can include, you know, in your interactions with patients and staff's interactions with patients. And then I think really importantly, uh, setting a tone with the paperwork that's in the office. So for example, like your intake forms, having inclusive language on there. So having a space for people to list both a preferred name and legal name, what their gender identity is, and then what their legal gender marker is on their ID and insurance, having both of those, being able to list out their sexual orientation and their gender identity, and not just giving like <laughs> two options, right? I think that's really important. And then making sure that you're actually using that language in interactions with them. I think something else that you can do universally is just taking an inclusive and thorough history, specifically social and sexual history. I know it can be awkward uh, to be really blunt with people about what their sexual practices are. And sometimes that's difficult to navigate because sometimes you need a different level of bluntness or uh, specificity um, with different patients. But I think it's always better to just 
be as objective and straightforward as you can um, about sexual practices so that you're getting an accurate history. Like I just ask what parts of your body do you use for sex and what do you call those parts of your body? You can ask if they use, they prefer anatomic terms like vaginal uh, versus some people like to say like frontal opening if they identify as trans mask and don't feel that same if they have a vagina feels affirming to them for example using terms like pelvic health rather than women's health could be something to think about and then along the lines of just kind of thorough sexual history this is not exclusive to the lgbtq population this is everyone we should be doing this for everyone but i think it comes up sometimes for some people that may have a more active sex life so screening for stis universally like just that's a normal thing just offer it every visit and it's not a big deal and then screening all parts of the body that are used for sex so it's possible to get gonorrhea and chlamydial infections in the throat and the rectum so if those parts of the body are being used for sex then we screen for those so and that's exactly how I present it I say it's possible to get these infections in the throat and the bottom if you use those areas of your body for sex so we screen for those. So you tell me what, what tests we need to do today. That's something that any office could do. I think along similar lines, not exclusive to the LGBTQ community, but maybe more relevant, especially for men who have sex with men or trans women. The use of PrEP and PEP is super easy and anyone can do it. Please offer it in your primary care office. A patient shouldn't have to go somewhere special to get it. And it's just, it's so simple. And then I think being aware of preventive care needs that might be more specialized or might get overlooked for that population. So we know that rates of um, mammograms and cervical cancer screening rates are much lower for lesbian women. And then similarly, even lower for trans men or trans mask folks um, or non-binary folks. So just kind of paying special attention to that and making sure that I think if people feel safer in their healthcare spaces, they might be more inclined to come in and get that testing done. Um, And then just talking about the importance of it, kind of trying to separate it from gender for Cervical cancer screening, I'm sure everyone is aware, uh, the current guidelines in the U.S. are to screen based primarily on cytology and then plus or minus HPV testing, depending on age and cytology results. However, um, it is possible to screen based on HPV primarily. That's done as the primary mode in some other parts of the world and our office is Currently, one of my colleagues is doing a study where we're offering HPV-based testing, which is done on a self-swab for people that are not comfortable doing a pelvic exam. So that's a risk-benefit conversation, but there is very good data behind screening in that way. And that's been a really great way for our um, trans mass folks to get that screening done and not have to go through a disaffirming 
pelvic exam. Trans women, specifically Black trans women, have a significantly higher rate of HIV. And just kind of catering what screening and how often you're offering that to people and kind of taking consideration um, those risk factors. So I was pulling up some data from the U.S. Um, transgender survey, which was done in 2015, updated last year, and the data is coming out this year. So it'll be interesting to see some changes. But for example, the rates of HIV discrepancy. So while 1.4% of all respondents in the survey were living with HIV, which is nearly five times the rate of the U.S. population of 0.3%, the rate among Black respondents was 6.7%. And substantially higher, the rate for Black transgender women was 19% living with HIV for Black trans women versus the U.S. population general average of 0.3. So similar increased rates for people that have multiple, like, multiple intersections of minorities, so bisexual or MSM Latino men, um, Black MSM, etc. So yeah, I think just kind of catering, screening, according to those things is important. I also think being aware of increased rates of mental health um, concerns, particularly anxiety, depression, PTSD, sexual violence is far more common in the LGBTQ community, particularly in the trans community. And so that may, that may impact your visits whether that patients may not may just not be as, as trusting or as comfortable, they'd have to take a little bit longer to build that therapeutic relationship. Physical exam components might feel scary to them. They unfortunately there is a pretty high rate of mistreatment within a medical setting as well, which might play in. But I think just kind of being sensitive to those things, making sure that people are well connected with mental health resources. My next question is, how do you confront bias and homophobia slash transphobia in policymaking and healthcare rhetoric when you're working with your patients? Yeah, so it sucks that this is present and it's something that you have to acknowledge um, and not really sugarcoat because it's real. Um, But I think trying to reassure patients, you know, that currently these services are accessible, just kind of trying to stay in the moment (laughs) Um, on you have this care now and we are going to give it to you is really important. It can feel kind of disempowering, but I think there's different ways to get involved in your local community and politics. That's something that interests you. I think just having a safe space, creating a safe space in your office is goes a long way in helping someone kind of combat all of the outside negativity that they experience. As far as resources for patients, there are a couple that can help them navigate in terms of like name change and gender marker change, kind of document bureaucratic process stuff. Um, there's a website called transequality.org. They have a section on documents. And then the website in general just ha- is a resource for different situations that, that might arise where people are facing inequities. What sort of strategies and resources do you use to acknowledge and help manage and treat mental health struggles in your patients? Yeah, so I think I pretty universally screen, I mean, 
guidelines are to universally screen for uh, depression. And I, I just always do a PHQ-9 and a GAD together, GAD-7 for anxiety and depression since they're so intertwined. But I think just screening for those. And then if you need to do additional screenings for PTSD, et cetera, that's really important. And that's something that should just kind of be baked into your everyday care and something that support staff can can do for you, you know, screening for food insecurity, housing insecurity. I'm lucky enough to work in a place where I have, we have resources that can help with those things. I know that's not always the case, but it, even if that isn't just kind of having some connection to someone else who can um, link patients without, you know, community resources for those needs is really important too. So there's a couple different, we, we at our office have just like a, a crowdsourced, um, constantly growing list of counselors that patients have had affirming experiences with. Um, that's something that had to be built for more re- universal resources. There's a couple websites that are self-reported, like, providers can go on and and say whether or not they are affirming and inclusive. So that might mean something different (laughs) to um, some person than another. I always give that caveat, but psychologytotake.com, you can put in like LGBT as a filter specialty and then put in your insurance and your zip code and find different mental health providers that way. Outcarehealth.org is similar, mentalhealthmatch.com and talkiatry. Um, So there's all resources that are self-reported. 